This is the best of 2019 Criterion Cast episode. I'm Ryan Gallagher. Joining me tonight, I have a whole team of folks from Criterion Cast to talk about their favorite releases of 2019. David Blakesley, how's it going tonight? Doing great, Ryan. Good to be back. Uh, this is our tenth episode of this uh, of this sort, so a little bit of a milestone there tonight. Quite a milestone. Uh, Scott Nye, hey Scott, howdy. Trevor Barrett, how's it going, Trevor? I'm doing great. And joining us again to talk about his favorite releases of the year, Jordan Esso. How's it going, Jordan? Good. Hi, guys. Thanks everyone for joining me tonight to talk about their favorite releases. I know it's always a challenge to kind of cram in as much viewing as possible before the end of the year. And sometimes you just want to savor these releases. And so often you might not have gone through everything, but uh, it's always fun to kind of meet in, meet back here and talk about which ones stood out for us, what our favorite covers have been, talk about some supplements, talk about some other criterion uh, things, but uh, tonight we'll be discussing our top three releases of the year, as well as our favorite covers that Criterion released. First up, before we get into all of the business of actually talking about our favorite releases, I have a little bit of stuff to talk about. For anyone who hasn't paid attention to the website in the last week or so, we have added uh, a new show to our roster over at the 25th frame last month, or back in October. Um, we had a uh, Josh Hornbeck launched a new show all devoted to the Criterion channel called Criterion Channel Surfing. Last week, Aaron and the folks at the 25th Frame had announced that they were going to be disbanding the site and that the shows, the various shows on the network were going to be going in uh, different directions. And we invited Josh to join us at Criterion Cast with his Criterion Channel Surfing show, which if you haven't listened to, is just an amazing show, very well produced and uh, a really great supplement to your viewing uh, anything on the Criterion channel. So we're very happy to have him now as a part of our site, and he'll be releasing new episodes uh, very soon. Uh, I also wanted to welcome back uh, Aaron West is going to be uh, rejoining the network. He's bringing Criterion now and Criterion Close-Up uh, as he releases those episodes. But um, he, as I mentioned, he's closing down the 25th frame, but he's bringing back Criterion now to, to our network. So uh, you'll see episodes popping up in your feed uh, from him also soon. There is one up already. Uh, the new episode that he interviewed, Matthew Modine, is up, and uh, it's a fun listen, so definitely check that out. All right, well, 2019 overall Criterion had a pretty amazing year. This was the year of Spine 1000, the year that the Godzilla box set was finally released after many years of rumors and uh hopes and dreams you know going all the way back to the laserdisc days when there was a, a godzilla box set planned and like we do typically in these end of the year best of favorite episodes we kind of try to focus a little bit of attention separately on the big box set of the year we've done that before with like you know last year we talked about the bergman set kind of apart from all of our individual releases even though it, it these box sets typically are kind of like some of the best of the year, if not the best of the year, in terms of you know size and price and uh, everything. So I thought maybe we might spend a few minutes talking a little bit about the Godzilla box set before we get into our actual individual releases, just because speaking for myself, this Godzilla box set is something that I have found myself wanting to watch 
you know, the films on here more frequently than the other releases uh, that Criterion has put out this year, just because I find them incredibly fun and uh, charming. And, you know, we recently did an episode with David for the Criterion Reflections podcast, where we talked about Godzilla versus Hedera. And um, I hadn't seen it before. And it was a good opportunity to get to kind of jump ahead in my viewing of the Godzilla films and real, real charmer. So um, I guess, you know, it's it's very different than the Bergman box set last year, and also very different than the Olympics box set before that. And um, I guess uh, David, now that we've had you've had a couple of months with sure. um, with this box, like how how do you find it? Uh, you know, as, in terms of its you know place in, in from Criterion uh, this year. Well, yeah, we we did talk about it a little bit on on that episode of Criterion Reflections. I would say, yeah, this this is definitely a standout release. It, it's 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 remarkable. It's memorable. Uh, it it kind of will cast a big shadow, even even literally physically, because it's just such a, a huge object. Uh, all the better to show off the incredible artwork. And uh, and really just give kind of Godzilla his due place. He's he's an enormous uh, pop culture icon, kind of a you know a myth that kind of came to life mid century and 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 carries on. You know, uh, this is the opening weekend of the of the Star Wars, uh, the Episode Nine or whatever, finishing up that franchise. But really, Godzilla has been you know doing his thing for you know well over sixty years now. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's, it's it's a pretty amazing uh, artifact. Uh, I think Criterion, you know, they they had the right property and the right time, and so Spine One Thousand is in the books. Uh, there's still a little bit of a puzzle as to where we fit it on our shelves and <laughs> how we keep our spine number continuity. Those of us who like to, you know, keep the whole thing together, so it's a little bit awkward on that sense. But you know, I, I love the set. I've I've probably done more sampling of the films than actually sitting out and watching them straight through. But I've 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 definitely, you know, spent minutes watching most of the films on the disc, just kind of jumping around, taking in some scenes, some of which I remember as a kid, and some of which are new discoveries for me. So, um, you know, given given the options at their disposal, I think they made the best choice they could for Spinal number 1000. For anyone who hasn't checked them out yet, uh, our friend Diascade, who has the amazing YouTube channel, went through the set and produced um, a number of really excellent long videos about um, breaking down different aspects of this box set. And he talks about, you know, missing dubs and supplements that might be included on um, previous releases that weren't brought over to this one. And so, um, but I'm, I'm very happy with it. I feel, I, I have fun flipping through the artwork and, um, you know, rediscovering some of these movies, some for the first time and some for that I haven't seen since I was, um, you know, young. Well, let's, um, let's do a round of talking about our favorite covers, our favorite like packaging designs of the year. This was, I feel like a very strong year for Criterion in terms of cover art. Obviously we're just talking about the Godzilla set and they managed to put together this amazing collection of, um, comic art, uh, illustrators who, you know, put together like these, like you were saying, like Jordan was saying, the, the pop art elements of it, it just looks um, gorgeous. But I mean, I had a really hard time narrowing my list down to one choice for uh, my favorite cover of the year. And so I might cheat and throw in a bunch of honorable mentions at the end if they don't get uh, brought up. But, you know, I mean, this year they just uh, 
really put together some very unique packages also in terms of the way that the box uh, comes together overall. Um, or in some cases, just managing to, you know, modernize the a film that, you know, some might have looked at as kind of like stale or, or long, too long or whatever, but it's, they managed to bring in some new painter or some new illustrator and, and just make it look, uh, totally incredible. And like, you know, unlike so many other, uh, home video releases by major studios who just are often so incredibly boring, they, they still stay fresh with, uh, putting together an amazing, you know, collection of, of designers. So, um, we're going to go around here and just talk about maybe our favorite choices of the year. And if you want to throw in any, uh, honorable mentions, feel free. So let's start off with David. David, what was your favorite cover of the year? Well, yeah, as you say, Ryan, there's there's a lot of really distinctive artwork, and and what I really appreciate is just the sort of the thematic consistency between the films themselves and the the package that you see that kind of introduces the film to you. Um, what I actually selected, and maybe I'll throw a few honorable mentions in after I do this, but it is is a little bit of a surprise to me when I sat down and really thought about it, but this is what I, I think was the best uh, other than the Godzilla box, which I think is just, you know, kind of, you know, it's kind of a mountain peak uh, among the foothills there, but we're not going to give that one, uh, you know, consideration in this, you know, it's not a fair uh, playing field, I suppose you could say. But I'm going to go with the Ingmar Bergman trilogy, which is kind of a repackage from the old DVD set. But uh, and and you know, I, I will say probably like many other uh, collectors, viewers, you know, a lot of us who have the Bergman box set, it's like, well, do I really need a a repackage of uh, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and and The Silence? But that package is is really just gorgeous and and uh, I, I think because they've made them to digipacks and kind of condensed it down from the old uh, you know four case DVD set uh, you know from the original edition it just has kind of a, a an efficiency and an elegance to it that I, I really love and and more than justified the purchase <laughs> again even though I've already got those films on blu-ray uh, from the Bergman box. I really love having this thing on the shelf. I think just the way it's been trimmed down and, uh, you know, with the new Criterion uh, logo and all of that, uh, I I just totally admire the... Uh, the clean aesthetic of it and uh, and the films it documents and even the way that the the covers kind of work with each other the the orientation of the actors on the cover uh the way that um uh, Harriet Anderson is looking to the left yet Gunnar Bornstrand in the middle with winter light and then um uh Ingrid Tulin and uh what's her name um Gonna Lindblom in the silence. I, I just love the sort of triptych that it forms if you lay the covers out side by side. So um, that that was my favorite package uh, and covers of the year. Total agreement here. I think that is a, a beautifully designed kind of not like minimal, but it has like a very clean, uh, elegant look to it. I love the the typeface, the font that they use um, for in like the laying out the the text on the back 
uh, of it. It's just like so pleasant to read. Um, and it's something that often goes kind of unnoticed uh, with some other Criterion releases. Um, but I feel like that one is also like has a, a nice texture to the paper that they mm-hmm. chose yeah, yeah, for it. Exactly. Um, that's something that I feel like is 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 being lost frequently with Criterion's um, upgrades or box sets or digipacks where like they're going with this like kind of smooth, glossy finish for a lot of the 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 paper you know releases and um i feel like that one has like a bit of tooth that is uh kind of makes it feel more valuable for whatever reason yeah yeah i I really yeah the tactile uh nature of it is the way it slides in and out uh it's it's just a really beautiful little object so yeah that's one um i really like the illustration on the cover of la verte the clouseau film of course it's brigitte bardot she's beautiful and but there's also a, a poignant expression on her face and and that film really um you know, kind of putting a woman in the center of this scandalous spotlight and just the anguish she's going through. It's a great performance and and a really, uh, I I found it a very moving and effective film, but that that cover was one that stood out to me. To Sleep With Anger, I I really liked the the liveliness and vividness of that illustration. I think the the upgrade of Do the Right Thing is pretty bold, very striking. Obviously, it was a little bit of a subject of the making of with the uh, the painting of that exterior of Spike Lee's studio and office in Brooklyn there. Uh, so you've got a real kind of uh, geographic location for that cover, if you know the story of it, as well as just the, the amazing package that they did for that reissue of Do the Right Thing. So those were probably a few that stood out to me as, as among my favorites. Scott, what about you? What was your favorite uh, cover art of the year? Yeah, I also considered a few things here. I really wanted, in principle, to stick up for the stills covers, because those kind of get a bad rap among certain elements of the Criterion fan base. But I think a well-placed still, uh, underrated uh, on a Criterion cover. So I was looking at uh, Betty Blue and uh, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, and Wanda. I thought were all really well-chosen and really eye-catching in their own unique ways. But I did inevitably uh, trend towards a painted cover, which as soon as they announced the disc, it's not even a film that I'm overly fond of, but the cover is so stunning, which is the cover for... Kelly Reichardt's Old Joy, uh, the cover is credited to Ricardo Vecchio, um, just this gorgeous painting that isn't really in the color palette of the film, but kind of feels a certain reflective of it, like kind of in the nostalgia, kind of permeates what the characters are experiencing. Um, I love the expression he gave the dog, uh, just the way the sky is kind of this blank place, but the ground is kind of swelling up with all these colors that you know no ground would ever have. Um, I don't know. There's just something really touching about it and really beautiful about it. And I was really blown away the second I saw it. So I had to go with it for cover of the year. But there's a mistake. Did you notice, Scott, that like the sea isn't reflected down below? (laughs) Oh, I'm changing all this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is an incredibly gorgeous watercolor. I think watercolor painting that it's... uh, I would have guessed, yeah. yeah. It's it's a beauty. And the color, I mean... So often, Criterion will kind of pair co- covers seemingly in the in months with films that are totally unrelated. But I don't the the, the blues and kind of reddish oranges kind of pair nicely with Until the End of the World, which also came out uh, True. in like you know alongside it, and um, they look nice together. But um, 
But yeah, the Old Joy cover, I think, is definitely a highlight of the year. So the the cover that I chose, and I, I just before I get there, I have to kind of curse you and David for talking up the Bergman trilogy because... Dang it, that's a, like a triple dip, maybe quadruple dip for me. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't yeah. want to do it and have, have held out on the temptation, but it really is a, a gorgeous package. And it, those films mean so much to me, but I don't know. I'll, I mean, maybe I'll see if I can stay strong. But the cover that I chose um, to, to highlight as my favorite of the year, even though there were several, as all of you have said, is the one by Catherine Lamb for uh, Ozu's The Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice. I love this kind of peaceful and serene uh, cover with the framing boxes that are, uh, you know, so reminiscent of what we see in Ozu's film. Um, and, and thanks to the Eclipse viewer and various things like that, I've gone through uh, Ozu's filmography in, in more detail than I probably would have otherwise. And so this is something that when I first saw it just evoked so many beautiful moments of, of touching intimacy and poignant, uh, you know, pain. And it just is, is one of these covers that uh, I, 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 I knew it was going to be my favorite of the year uh, when I saw it. It never changed, uh, even though, like I say, there were several other that I thought, others that I thought, okay, let's look at these side by side. Do I really... Uh, want to stick with my my first reaction to the flavor of green tea over rice and the answer ended up being yes it's it's just uh, one of those um, that I I look at the art and see so much else in it uh, that that I love about Ozu's Ozu's work so you know that's uh, Catherine Lamb again is the artist on that and I just think she did a, a wonderful job this was also heavy in the running for me I didn't mention it ahead of time because I knew Trevor had it uh but I, it also is reflective that as much as Criterion can have a tendency to like group directors in terms of like uh, design elements and kind of make their covers fit together, I like that their Ozu covers are so different release to release. And it brings out so much in Ozu that for a director who's often thought of as kind of all his films are basically the same, like the covers really illustrate how distinct they all are. And we don't get very many new Ozu films joining the collection. I know. So often they're just uh, upgrades of previous releases. And so to get one like this, it was a real treat. And then also to have it just have a very, you know, a new cover artist joining uh, the ranks. And I think it's beautiful as well. All right, Jordan, why don't you tell us a little bit about your favorite cover of the year? I chose Diamonds of the Night. Um, And like Scott's choice, it might be digitally polished, you know, for production, but it does convincingly, you know, evoke that organic power of handmade collage and handmade illustration. And and it's appropriate to the film, um, to Jan Nimitz's uh, filmmaking style, like these various elements overlapping at different scales, sort of a dissolution of space and this great feeling of chaos and lostness and and, and menace, but also a feeling of tentative escape, like there's a tentative triumph to it. Um, so it's just it's also just sort of like a, a compelling image to look at if I was going to put a poster of, of one of them on my wall, which ended up being kind of the rubric I used. I, I choose this one. Um, I, I feel a, a kind of simpatico with this, this style of illustration. It, and it, I mean, tell me if you agree. There's a lot of, I think, really good contemporary illustration that seems to be commenting on the type of illustration that it is. Uh, and this feels like it is a drawing without quotes. Uh, and I do like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I thought, you know, they uh, it's it's fun sometimes with a Criterion releases being released by other companies overseas. So like, there's the second run Blu-ray release of uh, this one, but um, I think you you almost kind of need both because that one has like a commentary track and this one doesn't. But this one, I feel like you you get better art with the Criterion uh, release. So it's yeah, it's a gorgeous one, and it's a good use of. I know that I think. Most of us prefer the booklets. Uh, I know you do, Ryan. Uh, but this is a really good use of the accordion-style um, form of the booklet, where the art inside, um, I think, makes really good use of, of that long version of the artwork that it can take advantage of. And I, I love the image they put on the disc, because it looks like the branches almost become barbed wire. I, I love the idea of just the landscape um, as the image on the inside um, and for runners up, I, uh, I'd go with Hedvig be my, actually my, my primary runner up is probably your choice, Ryan, but I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say that's probably the correct answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for Hedvig, like they just went all out on this thing. It is such a beautiful, thorough production job and the artwork they put together feels like hand-painted Xeroxes, which just feels so right for the film, like that that mix of like punk rock and glam rock and, uh, you know, alternative uh, ideas of, of glamour. Uh, and then it's a full booklet with just really great selection of photos, just really nicely put together. So I, that's my secondary runner-up. Yeah, that one is also good. That was definitely uh, on my list. Um so again, an amazing year for covers. Uh, so many like great paintings, the Jackie Chan police story ones, the La Verte and uh, Death in Venice covers, I think are just gorgeous that I love the magic flute. Um, even the ones that like the one, one sings, the other doesn't where it's, uh, I can't remember now. Is that Sam Smith? Did he end up doing that one? Well, or, actually, that was the 70s poster oh, or sort of an adapted version of it. Yeah. The main illustration was from the 70s. Poster, um, oh, yeah. Sam did the one for Hapon, the, um, mm, mm-hmm. and the way they did like a Ray little Gattis, behind the scenes. Right. Yeah. But my pick, okay. So I went back and forth up until right before we started recording. I had one chosen and then I ended up swapping my cover and favorite release of the years uh, in my list here. But um, I was going back and forth between the cover or and basically the whole package for do the right thing or the coker trilogy and i ended up swapping them so now i'm choosing the coker trilogy as the best cover package uh of the year and then i'm going to talk about do the right thing a little bit later but i think both were just um when i you know sometimes criterion just changes up the way that they do things or they really just put a lot of work into creating just like the ultimate package for a film. And that's obviously what, like a huge part of why they're so beloved amongst collectors is because they really spend the time to put um, a lot of thought and care into it. And every once in a while there's a mistake or there's something like some, some critical flaw, like in their recent release of um, all about Eve, which is kind of like, you know, they, they've admitted to like flaws in the design process and so you know but so often it's like one out of the entire year is kind of like uh, a failure in some ways but for me (laughs) the uh the release of 
uh, Kiarostami's The Coker Trilogy. Um, I mean, I was already a fan of the kind of the like geometric uh, layout that they had shown off when they showed the covers for it. And there was some, discu- there, were some there was actually quite a bit of discussion surrounding the spine number usage and the, whether or not the box was going to have a spine and whether the individual releases um, would, be, would be also numbered within, which is, you know, a, a, a point of discussion that we've had over the past decade of whether or not Criterion numbers box sets, or they, you know, or they number the individual titles within, and they go back and forth, and there's it's inconsistent, but um, you know, can can be rationalized uh, both ways. Um, but with this one, my favorite part of it is just how they managed to um, overlap the the individual covers with the die cut. Uh, triangles inside so that you're seeing all three covers within as you uh, slide it out of the box and you kind of get a glimpse of them also with little die cut um, squares on the front Um, you know the only thing I think that would make this box even better for me as a collector was just if they had gone with uh, the like the non-glossy finish for the paper Um, that's the only thing I think that kind of like is like the the one weak link in this you know in this chain here. So I I I just I really love the design. I think Eric Skillman is the one who came up with it, and he's posted a few um, process design sketches on Twitter over uh, back when this was released. I think he posted some some design you know preliminary sketches and thoughts on it. But um, I I still love you know, just the, the way that they, the digipacks also kind of fold together in a way that they typically don't ever do. And, um, I thought it was just very clever and, you know, well-designed. And very evocative of sort of the, the nesting, uh, you know, structure of these three films too. So, um, can we all agree that if blue velvet had actually been released with a crushed blue velvet slipcase it would have been a unanimous winner <laughs> across the board <laughs> that that would have been amazing and I, as i mentioned the do the right thing cover i just have to throw out another bit of honorable mention david mentioned the the um kind of process that we got to see on the there was a, a video of the artist kind of do like creating and painting that mural on the side of the wall and um we got a, like you know an early tease from the artist i think before the re- before the cover was actually announced and um but then once you actually get into the the box itself and you pull it out and you're seeing like these paintings and the disc colors and the you know the giant booklet that has uh this like part of the script in it it's just um it's just incredible so Anyway, that is I, I I was I had a hard time deciding whether in between those two releases, but I have to think, you know, as soon as I opened the Coker trilogy back in over the summer when it came out, it was, you know, kind of like, oh, well, this is obviously going to be my favorite release of the year cover wise. And nesting is a great way to put that, David. I, I just I love the way that the only image that is fully intact as a cover is the first film, which the other two rely on. Uh, I just I love that sort of reliant relationship that they that the structure of the cover creates and my favorite thing to do is take that slipcase and like put it by itself and let the like noir shadow cast on the back of the box it's mm. like one of the scenes from a, the friends where's the friend's house in, in the night sequence it's gorgeous are there any other ones that i need to mention before we move on just because i feel like you know the war and peace painting i think 
uh, was also just yeah. really beautiful. Um, that was close for me. Yeah. Uh, the oh, Hexen okay. one, too, was one that I almost threw in yeah, there. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, and I can't let us not talk or at least mention the painting for polyester because it's just like <laughs> incredible. <Yeah. laughs> it's like shock, not shocking, but like, you know, it's like so bold and beautiful. And uh, it was like the highlight of that month, I think, in terms of cover art and just. Uh, so much fun. And then, you know, to have the smell, smell aroma, uh, the odorama, uh, insert in there is just, uh, you know, a very smelly treat. It's a good thing you brought that up, Ryan, because had you not, I think a lot of uh, folks out there would have stopped listening and considered the episode completely <laughs> <Yeah>. invalid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what else before we move on? I guess like the, the baker's wife, the circus, you know, also yeah. great, uh, great covers. They're also apropos to the film that um, it's really hard to pick one that's uh, you know the best or the favorite because they they're just uniformly excellent and and um, just very very fitting. All right. Well, if there aren't any other covers to discuss, let's jump into the first round of our top three of the year. We're going to start off with number three, our third favorite release. I'm going to go back around to David. David. Let's talk about your your first choice of the night. Yeah, well, this was uh, it's a new discovery for me. This was Vim Vendors until the end of the world, kind of a late in the year release. And maybe I should just kind of say a little bit about my ground rules. I really am kind of going with of the moment. Uh, I have already talked about at, at length some of the uh, 2019 releases that I really enjoyed quite a bit. So I've done podcast episodes on Wanda and on Clute and on Death in Venice, all happening just to fit within the 1971 scheme of my podcast. So there, there's that. So I'm not really going to bring those up, although I think they're all three pretty pretty high up there in my overall rankings but this is just kind of where i've been at over this uh, last you know month or two just kind of you know as you sort of alluded to ryan uh, cramming and getting in as many of the 2019 releases as i could uh kind of putting my podcast and other stuff on hold and just really catching up on on the new release schedule but uh yeah until the end of the world was one that uh i had heard a little bit about and i knew that this was one that um uh, diehard vendors fans have been kind of really hoping for for a long time and uh, then I heard about all the, the the great soundtrack and stuff and when this film first came out 1990 that was definitely those were my cinematic blind spot years I was busy with you know young children and raising a family and just kind of keeping my head above water so I really had no awareness of this film at the time when it first came out uh, but I had heard about it over the years and so I was very eager and, and ready to just jump in and see what the what the buzz was all about and I absolutely uh, was delighted to just jump into this world this kind of uh, projection of nine years into the future from the perspective of 1990 into 1999 it's kind of an end of the millennium story it's a it's very prescient in terms of uh how you know mobile devices and and the internet is used uh of course there's some things that they don't get exactly right but it's it's i i just really love kind of retro future type of stuff where we're seeing what the future looked like to you know people in times past and i was very much 
you know, in this world when it was being made, looking ahead to the end of the millennium and all of that. Uh, but, but you know, the the uh, scale of this film, the the audacity to put together this four and a half, almost five hour production that vendors had in mind uh, with, you know, big location uh, f- shooting, you know, on a global scale, uh, a, a pretty fun and engaging story. Um, I definitely can see the the sorrow that he felt having to cut this down to a more commercially viable running time. Uh, this really is kind of a mini series you could say. Uh, but I'm sure it would be a delight to see on the big screen and maybe I'll have that chance sometime. But this to me is just a, a pretty outstanding release, uh, more than lived up to the, uh, the hype and expectations as far as, you know, what was sort of instilled in me and in, in reading the, you know, ecstatic reactions when Criterion announced that it was going to not only release this film, but release the full cut. So uh, uh, I've already, you know, kind of gotten through it you know, entirely, and I'm kind of working my way through it again. And uh, I just really enjoy kind of stepping into this this saga here. And, uh, you know, there, there are some things about it that make it maybe not a perfect film, but I really love the ambition and the uh, the vitality of the storytelling. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just been a really great discovery for me. So I put that as number three for the year. Uh, I had this as my number three as well, and uh, I totally agree. This is one that I hadn't seen before up until the Criterion put it out. I was, it had been, it had, I think it was a part of the t- various tours of the restored vendors films that Janice and the the Vendors Institute had kind of um, restored and put together, and then were releasing theatrically. They played here in Portland uh, at various times, but. Um, I totally agree. I think this the package overall too is just so good. It's got you know a lot of supplements. They breaking they're breaking up the film onto two discs, um, makes it more manageable. Makes it so that you can you know watch it over the course of a couple nights if you can't squeeze it all in uh, in one sitting. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with you know doing stuff like that for these longer films when we all have you know various time constraints. I think it's uh, just you know definitely worth watching. Um, even if you have to kind of split it up and the cinematography, the, you know, the, the, all the, the shots in Australia, Australia is just such an amazingly beautiful, like uh, otherworldly cinematic uh, landscape that I just can't get enough of. And anytime you can, you know, get that amazing blue sky and, you know, the, the, the contrast of colors and everything is just uh, so beautiful to look at. It's one that uh, is probably going to, impress a lot of people yeah it's it's a big scale it's a a kind of a story of international intrigue i mean there are and and there's even i i wouldn't i wouldn't i don't know what's the word i'm looking for there's there's something a little hipsterish about it which is kind of you know it's it's just kind of you know this is this is what the the cool smart guys thought was kind of rad bitchin stuff back in 1990 you know, the fashions the music the soundtrack all of that um i i i kind of like it there's there's sort of a charming quality about it uh a little bit of uh datedness uh, of of kind of what was you know, considered cutting edge at the time. And I, and I love their cell phones, like these little pedestal like things that you get. And and some of the, some of the projections of future technology, the little VR goggles and stuff like that. There's just a lot of really interesting little fun details to enjoy. 
like as a, as I've already said, as well as the the scope and scale of this very ambitious uh, young filmmaker. Who, uh, yeah, and 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 having Chishu Ryu and Jean Moreau, uh, you know, in this film. When I first saw that lineup, it's like, how can Chishu Ryu and Jean Moreau and Sam Elliott and Max von Sydow all be in the same movie? Does that even is that even allowed? <laughs> you know, but it's a really very very cool uh, undertaking. Uh, you know, vendors obviously was feeling, you know nearly invincible i i would imagine uh daring to pull this off but i think he did a pretty fantastic job and it is it is a shame though i can understand from the studio's perspective why you know putting a four hour and 40 minute film in the theaters just didn't seem like it was going to uh you know pay dividends i i do wonder if some of the films appeal from being sort of this lost object uh this uh you know elusive artifact that's been hard to find and hard to see in its in its totality uh enhances the appeal but i i do believe that you know this is this is one where where the um the the promotions and the expectations have uh have been fulfilled here and it's it's a great thing to be able to just to pop this in and and watch it at leisure however it fits best into one schedule absolutely and uh, I, 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 I think I mentioned it, but the cover art is just uh, gorgeous. I love the the triangles. I love the like the neon blue triangle that kind of wraps around the other triangles. It's just such a great design. We talk about, uh, you know, would you want to put this up on your wall as a poster? And I think, even though like I loved, you know, the other ones, I think this is probably of all the 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 po- you know the covers this year. I think this is probably one of the few that I would want to own uh, up on the wall somewhere. All right, let's move on to Scott's pick. Scott, what was your uh, third favorite release of the year? Yeah, so for a variety of uh, reasons, mostly uh, professional, I unfortunately didn't have a lot of time this year to dive into many Criterion releases. I did hit a rather fortunate period of sickness this week where I got to catch up on some stuff over a couple of days. <laughs> That's but how you do it, right? <laughs> otherwise, uh, I unfortunately wasn't able to take a lot of things in until the end of the world was really one that I thought surely over two days I would be able to take the time to watch this week, but I just didn't get around to it. I can't wait to check it out, though, uh, along with several others. So my list is from a rather small batch that I did, did mean to did manage to get to this year, uh, including my number three, which is Let the Sunshine In, uh, Claire Denis' 2017 film that uh, I recently put on my top, my top five for best of the decade. I think it's a really incredible film that I hope sticks around uh, for a long time. And I think Criterion's inclusion of it will help urge that along. It's just this weird, sort of oddly shaped film about this woman who trying to find love uh, but doesn't know if she's capable of it or if there's someone out there for her or maybe there is and she's just too picky there's all this interesting strange psychology going on under the surface and a strange sense of humor too it's a really really funny movie in often kind of a very mean cutting way but which is just so captivating I saw it three times in theaters and it's really one of those that I can't stop watching I'm glad this Criterion Edition exists to take it all in. Um, I think they did a pretty solid job with the supplements. I like the sort of slim approach they take with these IFC releases, get interviews in with the key contributors, in this case, Claire Denis and Juliette Binoche, get a rock-solid essay in there. 
and get a bonus Claire Denis short film in there as well. It was a real treat. Um, it's a short film that would never be released on any other platform. It also feels like a test run for Let the Sunshine In. Uh, but it was a really interesting pairing and really cool to watch. Uh, yeah, I like I said, I adore this film. I think it's one of the modern masterpieces, and I'm really happy that Criterion was in a contractual place that they could put it out. I, I just think it was an, an incredible performance by Juliette Binoche. I just yes. have the endless respect for the the courage and, and the um, the creative approach to her, her acting and the role she picks up and all that. It was, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, she's one of those who, like, Every time I don't think she can surprise me anymore, she keeps pulling out new stuff. It's just like, she's this far into her career, she's worked with some of the most acclaimed directors ever, and yet she still finds more to do in each film. It's really, really remarkable. I'm glad you to hear your praise on this one, Scott, because it feels like a lot of people you know, in our circle uh, didn't like this film much at all and kind of thought that it didn't have a place and wasn't really worthwhile, but I disagree. They right? can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Let it rip. Let it rip. I'm feeling punchy this evening. I apologize. Uh, go on, getting your, getting your health and strength back. I got, I got you. Yeah. No, but I, I think it's very inter- interesting, the psychology that's going on there and Benosha's performance to, to bring it all out. Um, it's it's a beautiful, fun um kind of terrible at times film that just uh, I I really liked it so I'm I'm glad that uh, again that you brought it up I was worried when you started saying you didn't watch very many films you'd be like so my number three is one I didn't like <laughs> no no far but from not it. the case uh, if, one of your top if anything of the this decade. is the film I like most of the three I picked uh, it's just <laughs> the other releases are a little bit more well shaped <laughs> no I think the like you mentioned the short uh, Criterion has been really putting some work into putting together or, you know, like adding short films from the filmmakers or, and, and like what they do on the, um, on the, the criterion channel when they pair different short films with different features or, you know, it, it's, it's nice to get these more frequently, uh, on the release. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's move on now to Trevor. Why don't you talk about your, uh, first pick of the night? All right, my first pick of the night is Elaine May's uh, Mikey and Nikki. And uh, I, I love this film for so many reasons. I think the story of its creation, uh, its fraught production is interesting, and you can see it on the screen. I mean, it is haggard at times, uh, but it really fits. It's a gritty film of gangsters, and I like my gangster films, Um and I really like it when the gangsters are kind of losers. And there's a filmmaker who, who is undercutting the the glamour and the 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 sense we might have that this is the life, or you know that these people are free, or have some kind of um, uh, some kind of access to uh, things that we don't have. Uh, and Elaine May really doesn't have a, a whole lot of time to create these sexy. Uh, men. Uh, it, from the beginning, uh, this is about men at the edge of, uh, of terror and fear, uh, vulnerable, um, and they, they go through this, this transformation over the night that uh, I think really displays how pathetic they can be and how sad they can be. And yet, there is a strength to the relationship in the film that is touching. Uh, these uh, two men that are that are, are have been friends for years, going through uh, this terrible night. Um, but 
I, I, I really am glad that Elaine May is the one who made this film because even though it's about this these men and their relationship, uh, she's able to to portray it in a way that I think shows a, a, a female perspective on this uh, that is unique and and very interesting. And also the female characters in the film, though they are bullied and though they are treated terribly by so many of the characters, and it can be very offensive, she makes sure that we know they are not mere props to these men, uh, that they do have feelings, that they do have uh, their own fears and their own uh, limitations on what they uh, can do about their terrible situation. Um, so I'm, you know, I was very happy. I, I ever since this showed up on Hulu, I've been waiting for Criterion to release it because it's just one of my one of my all time favorites. And uh, the release, you know, with the even though, like I said, it's a haggard film, to see it in such a, a good display is is a real treat. And and it, it was a great way to start 2019. And I guess another reason I chose this is that. It's emblematic, and I don't want. It isn't just a token. Again, it's one of my favorite films, but it is emblematic of Criterion's uh, focus that they have explicitly made to bring out more films by female directors, uh, which has paid off so much for me in my personal life because these are powerful, well-made, important films that have been dis counted over over the decades since they were made or over the years or in, in, in many cases are still being discounted uh, but we can see these as just as powerful just as important just as well put together as any film by some great world-class male directors and so I'm just glad that uh, Criterion has made that um, a little bit more of a focus and we can see that in, in in their releases this year, there there were a number, you know, uh, it, uh, of films by women that uh, are certainly ones that I I treasure now that I never had watched before. So, but but not to not to again to make that the reason I picked Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki. It's on its own a tremendous film. Yeah, like you're saying, it was released on the Hulu channel years ago. I feel like forever ago a lifetime ago and yeah. it was yeah <laughs> uh and then kind of you know would would i i can't remember if it had made its way onto filmstruck and then to the criterion channel but it seemed like you know it, it was in that that area those like lists of titles that criterion like has shown their hand and said okay well we have the rights to this in some way and you know whether or not cri- people would eventually see like you know the the real criterion release of it in the physical form uh it was kind of just something that maybe had fallen off of the list of anticipated releases but when they did announce it like you're saying it was such a treat and uh and i'll just uh, echo your thoughts on the fact that criterion has really been focusing on um putting together these uh you know, films by uh, and about women, and uh, they really do a stellar job of that on the Criterion channel and um, have been kind of uh, including as much as possible um, the physical releases. Um, and I'll just say, like, as something that we kind of talked 
about last year is like the producers as a part of the Criterion, um, you know, uh, world and how they're kind of gone unsung often. Um, the number of women producers at the Criterion collection um, is just so impressive. And it's, uh, you know, we, we, on various groups kind of keep track of uh, which producers are working on which releases as they come out. And so often, you know, often Criterion doesn't publicize it in the way that they might with, you know, the, the people who do the cover art or the people who write the essays and everything. It's like the producers who are really putting together so much of the work often go unrecognized. And um, this year they really did had a strong selection of women uh, producers. Jordan, let's talk about your, Uh, first pick of the night so for my first pick of the night i have chosen the astounding seven hour adaptation of war and peace um by sergey bondarchuk uh it is the uh adaptation a pretty full adaptation of leo tolstoy's uh canonical work or lev tolstoy depending on which uh literature class you enrolled in and it is, I mean, setting aside the like unprecedented resources that the Soviet state gave to this project, it's touted as like the most expensive film ever made if you take into account everything that was made available to it. Um, there aren't that many films that like really understand the pleasure of quiet abstraction as much as the pleasure of like bombastic choreographed fight scenes on a massive scale. Um, other than, you know, certain directors like Terrence Malick come to mind, like really have patience to execute both. Um, and so I feel like this film really achieves a somewhat perfect balance between those two things, which is to say that they're like deliberately interrelated things like mirroring the thesis of Tolstoy that, that the impulses of the individual, that the individual's desires that construct a similar anatomy for both war and for peace. Um, and then, then on a visual level, it's just so sumptuous, like the color palette, the delicate handling of the lighting, um, the constant use of vignetting. Um, it's stunning and breathtaking just as a visual experience. Um, but as a philosophical experience, like it, it really shows, you know, over the, over the scope of these seven hours, the, the ineffectiveness of individuality that like individuality is in some ways more vibrant than society as a whole but it's like predictably absurd it's predictably self-destructive it's arbitrary like the arbitrariness of this story is so beautiful and so effective like everybody is full of craving but there's essentially this this free-floating nature to everything that our, our fate is in aggregate stupefying but it's not without virtue it's not without occasional pleasure um and again, I just really feel like this, it succeeds as a film, but also fulfills like Tolstoy's pacifist and anarchist impulses. Um, it is, it's just, it's really astounding. And it's really interesting. It's made it like the height of the Cold War. So you've got this message that is in some ways like really obviously anti-violence. It's like anti-conflict. And so for the Soviet state to put so much money behind a film that shows bloodshed is arbitrary and and ultimately um doesn't achieve anything it's a fascinating theme for the soviet union to do at the height of the cold war you know i i would have probably in fact this is one of those films where it feels like maybe years from now this will be up in my 
a total upper echelon. I've only gotten through the first two films of, of this set, so I really didn't feel like I could say this is my top three since I just hadn't gotten through the whole thing yet. But it, I, I love the idea that this is a Soviet film, which gives us a much more nuanced um, look at what was happening in that nation other than they were just the evil empire or whatever, you know, that there were people of conscience and artistic refinement and sensibility trying to say, hey, we want to make a message that speaks to the rest of the world. It's not just, you know, Khrushchev and, and the, you know, the, 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 the iron heel and all of that type of thing, but that there, there really was a, a humanitarian sense of really trying to communicate something to address the global culture. So um, I'm, I'm really glad to hear your, your comments on this film. And I'll probably echo some of those thoughts once I've had a chance to get through it. But, but you're right. Just, just what I have seen so far is just really remarkable. I mean, the, the, the battle scenes, the ballrooms, yeah, um, just, just the whole spectacle of it and the, the thoughtfulness that went into to pulling this off, the, you know, the ambition of, of trying to do something that's in some ways maybe competing with Western spectacles and Hollywood and all of that, but, but also doing something that's very Russian and, and uh, you know, is, is trying to make a statement uh, for the ages, so to speak. Yeah, the, how experimental the film is at various times, it astounds me that this was the epitome of mainstream filmmaking in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union at this time. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. It's it's really breathtaking. And it's not very warm, which I interpret, you know, through the, my Western eyes as, as being somewhat Soviet in its temperament. Um, but that it really ends up rewarding seven hours with these various characters because you're not spent after the first three hours. You know, you're still very curious about the internal lives of these people because you get ultimately very little and i think that's ultimately to its advantage because you do need to stay captivated for that long one thing that i have mentioned on past episodes when we talk about uh films of various length that criterion puts out um and then also kind of corresponding with the standard price point that they are often uh, priced at. And, you know, every once in a while there's a, a cheaper one and sometimes there are more expensive ones. This is one of the more expensive ones because it's on two Blu-rays. And I try to always say, oh, well, we shouldn't always equate, you know, price with, uh, you know, running times and prices and saying like, you know, you're if you're buying, you're spending 20 to $40 on a, on a shorter film, then you're not getting as much as if you were to spend on uh, the longer films like these seven or, you know, like the, the four or five, six hour uh, films. It's, uh, you do feel a, a sense, uh, like a, a, a strange pleasure in, you know, getting this on a 50% off sale and you get, you know, this, this massive, uh, you know, piece of art that you have at your, you know, for the rest of your life, as long as you, as long as this disc survives, you'll be able to like, just take your time and really savor, uh, all the little details that they put into this amazing production. This is the equivalent of a box set, really. I, in fact, I think the DVD version is a box set, you know, that's, probably made years ago but there's there's a ton of content they didn't they didn't package it as such but you're right if you're looking at movies as sausage by the pound (laughs) i guess this is a a bargain in some ways and it does feel like an evergreen in the way that you know like when i first started 
enjoying the Criterion Collection. There were the films that felt like the canon of the Criterion Collection. And this feels like it joins that. It, it doesn't feel like just another great release this year. This feels like years from now, this will be considered still like one of the essential things that you have to have access to. We talk about the covers, and I mentioned this poster, and you can buy the poster separately from Criterion, but they did include it as one of the fold-out posters that are often discussed in these end-of-the-year episodes as far as like, you know, whether or not we like them and how easy it is to actually read the essay included when it's on a, the back of a giant poster. It is nice to be able to just, even, even if it's just to look at the cover kind of close-up, um, is a real treat. And it's, it's nice to see like the, you know, the, the, the little pencil marks and everything that once you blow this image up to, you know, a wall size thing. So are you slowly converting to accepting I mean, this tradition? I, I, if, if they could give me both, if they could give me a fold out poster, <laughs> uh, a, a giant size version of the cover, and then also a booklet that has the essay that makes it a little bit easier to read, uh, oh, Ryan. Then I will, uh, then I, yes, I will say that I'm uh, a convert to the fold out posters inside. But um, I, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, I, I guess I have to be realistic too in the fact that, like, I, how often do I, I mean, I try to read the essays um, for all the releases as, as I watch them. But, you know, they have to make these choices whether or not there's various costs involved. And if, if these, posters and fold out inserts are saving them dollars that allow them to spend money on acquiring the distribution rights for a, you know, a harder to find film or a more expensive film. Then, uh, this is just the, the cost of doing business with uh, the criterion collection. You always got the website for reading. <laughs> exactly. <too. laughs> I know you're right that it's for the economics, but I have to say conceptually, just as a side note, the poster that's included in the heiress feels like a perfect conceptual choice. Um, not only can you see the textures of the textile better, but that this is her version of herself. Anyway, I, just, I feel like at least in that choice, uh, at least in that um, edition, that was the right way to go, even though it screws up the essay. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our second round of picks. We're gonna; These are going to be our second favorite releases uh, of the year. David, what did you choose for this next round? Okay, well, I went with the, I guess this is my sort of, uh, well, you know, Until the End of the World was a discovery, but this is sort of, sort of like, who is this guy and where did he come from? These are the two Bruno de Mont films, uh, La, La Vie de Jesus and Le Manité, um, which I really didn't know much of anything about. I mean, I, I know I'm a little late to the party, uh, perhaps in the eyes of some, but I didn't know who Bruno Dumont was. I really had no expectation or uh, appraisal of these films. They, it was just a complete blind spot. But uh, once I got them, I, I got a promotional copy of La, La Vida de Jesus, and then I bought Lumenite and one of the sales, uh, whatever that was, maybe the Barnes & Noble sale probably. And I just really dig this type of filmmaking. Um, he's a few years older than me, and he's making films that are based in kind of the rural north of France, the, the, the countryside and small towns. And that 
it kind of puts me in the mind of where I live in, in Western Michigan, even though I live in kind of a suburban area of Grand Rapids, kind of a, one of our bigger cities in the state. Uh, I spend a fair amount of time and, and have family and friends who kind of from, come from the, more of those rural areas. And it was just really fascinating to me to see his portrayals of life. And these are not you know flattering portrayals by any means. These are in many ways very bleak and and fairly intense films but i i really love the aesthetic and the and the the challenging and philosophical nature of it you know jordan talked about the philosophical aspects of war and peace this is this is a very different scale of filmmaking and storytelling but to me extremely compelling um i know that he has his detractors and there are some who would say this is kind of overblown and the characters are stiff and there's a pretension here, but you know, that, that all sails past me. I, I can understand where some would level that critique, but I, um, I just, I really, really like the, the stripped down aesthetic, the long takes, the naturalism and the, and the heavy themes that he's addressing here of, 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 of boredom and futility and violence and sexuality just you know just this very elemental stuff that's going on in these stories that are in some ways very simple and very pedestrian and and just very ordinary uh but like i say i i really uh, enjoy and, and I'm intrigued to study, you know, to, to, to encounter more of this type of filmmaking and sort of being introduced to Bruno Dumont. Uh, these are his first two feature films. Uh, there is a nice little package of other Dumont films on the Criterion channel that I'm very eager to get into. And now that this episode's out of the way, I think now that I've been kind of finishing up my catch up of 2019 Criterion physical media releases, I, I definitely want to get those Dumont films in because I really want to see where this guy takes me in his own growth as a filmmaker so uh yeah i I think these may not even be like the greatest films of the year but i think just this whole encounter with this with this uh this voice and, and and his vision uh definitely made a very strong impression on me so i put him in my number two of the year david um I'd like to do a, a whole episode on these two with you because absolutely, yeah. I I really I, enjoyed is the wrong word, but these yeah, are right. these made an indelible impression on me. I'm not entirely sure it was positive. No, but no, I know, they're, 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 I, I know I'd get a good a good amount of um, of help with all, a lot of that uh, and more appreciation yeah. with a good episode. Yeah, no, I, let's let's figure it out to make a way to make it happen because. Uh, going to be a long time before criterion reflections ever gets up <laughs> 1997 or whenever that is so <laughs> we'll we'll bump it up in the queue there yeah I, w- I would love to revisit these films dig deeper into their stories their their themes and all of that so uh yeah I, i'm up for it 1999 i think is the year of uh humanity and that's usually talked about a, a year that has a astounding good choice of masterpieces. I think that deserves to be part of that conversation. I, I was really blown away by the film and how ambiguous it was and how patient it was with itself. And the ending is kind of like a puzzle that continues to, you know, refraction, <laughs> like upon further consideration. So I, I really enjoy that about it. And I thought the acting was excellent. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan as well. All right, let's move on. Unless anyone else has 
Anything else they want to add to this, to Scott's uh, second pick of the night? Yeah, I went with uh, Barbara Loden's Wanda, uh, which is a film I first saw back in film school when I was probably 21 or so. I saw it as part of a new Hollywood class. And, you know, we were watching like the Parallax View and The Godfather and Nashville and all these like big classics. And then there was a film Wanda that I'd never heard of. And we watched it, and I was like, what the hell is this? This is inexplicable. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't hate it, but I just couldn't, like, I couldn't find a way in. And revisiting it after Criterion put out the release, it's just, like, it's so far down into what the new wave, the Hollywood new wave was doing uh, that I can see, you know, compared to those other big glossy studio movies, why I couldn't quite uh, get on board with it at the time. Um, But now I'm so glad that it has re-entered my life and uh, has re-entered all of our lives and finally getting a proper release after decades and decades of kind of mistreatment and neglect and uh, just kind of dismissal in general, um, despite being a very critically acclaimed film. Um, yeah, we're really lucky to have it. We're really lucky that the transfer that UCLA and Criterion did uh, – came out as well as it did. I don't remember offhand like the innumerable uh, gifts of just complete fortune and coincidence that got the materials together for this, but it was some wild story where like there just turned out to be a mislabeled film can somewhere. And if not for that, then there wouldn't be nearly this pristine and edition available. Um, but the transfer and restoration look incredible. Uh, the film really holds up as a really fascinating kind of obtuse, kind of wild film with a lot of uh, turbulent emotion bubbling under the surface uh, that's just as deserving of its classic status as anything else from the era. Uh, I really like Criterion's package. I like how much material they have in there from Barbara Loden, even though, you know, the film, as acclaimed as it was upon release, was never really considered a classic, so you would think it'd be harder to find this kind of archival material, but Criterion did a really good job assembling it all. Um, and yeah, I'm really really very pleased to have it yeah and the, and the whole the whole behind the scenes story too is is really incredibly moving i mean uh we're very fortunate that she was given the opportunity to make this film and that when she got that opportunity she made this really indelible and really so i don't know progressive or ahead of its time or or expressive of uh of of the experience of of, of some women um it it seems like amazing that wow this came out in 1970 really you know it just it it just feels very forward and 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 very you know in its own way very timeless uh, i kind of squeezed it into my uh, podcast and i think we had a pretty excellent episode discussion of it so yeah i think it's a very worthy pick and one that i hope uh isn't getting lost in the shuffle it definitely is a film that needs to be seen it's a bit of a magic trick with the main character in that she's not terribly likable uh, as a person. And yet, often it seems to me what writers end up doing with a character like that to make them survive you know, the status of being your lead characters, they, they make them like a real badass, like their confidence level is, is heightened. Or they become super pathetic, so you can't help but feel sorry for them. And Wanda kind of is neither of those choices. She's She's there are pathetic things about her, but she herself does not seem to be begging for our empathy, although I have empathy for her. Um, she doesn't seem to be 
you know, overly confident, although she's assertive and clearly the person that is, you know, the in the driver's seat of her own life. So there's something really kind of interesting about the way that as a viewer, I relate to Wanda because I'm fascinated by her. I don't particularly like her, but I am rooting for her. Yeah, this is something I kind of get on a slight soapbox a bit about every now and again, because I think uh, the ways in which uh, female characters can come across as unlikable are different than the ways that men do. You know, the kind of male unlikable, like anti-hero, like you're talking about, are very aggressive, very charismatic, and we're like, ooh, they're they're kind of badass. But uh, the roles that women, especially the further back you on history, were forced into uh, makes their uh, makes certain unlikable personality traits come out in ways that are more trying in some ways, but I think films like this that tackle those head on and give us a really well-rounded character, I'm just always so grateful for. And they're the kind of characters that you rarely see because they're, you know, you want, you want the female characters to be like pushing for themselves and, you know, justifying their place in society and making progressive ends and all that. And you don't want women like Wanda who are a little bit pathetic and who are a little bit wanting and need, uh, some hole filled in their life, but can't quite find that. But this is like such an integral experience for so many women for centuries and well mm-hmm. up to today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm very uh, pleased that Barbara Loden didn't shy away from that in her directorial debut. Agreed. You mentioned earlier, Scott, in talking about uh, covers that you like to stick up for the ones where they just use, you know, s- still images of um, of actors or scenes from the movie. And I think this one, uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely stands out uh, a, a well above, you know, the typical like still image cover, um, the use of like the, the typeface, the, the title treatment down at the bottom with the kind of like grayish beige uh, background. I think they did, a, you know, it's a great color combination beautiful piece of uh cover work and it captures such a specific moment in the film too you know it's i mean any still obviously is but that's a very poignant incident like right at the end you know to avoid spoilers there but once you see the story and where that picture is taken from it's like they, they nailed it yeah um i guess i also would just like to mention for anyone out there who hasn't had a chance to watch this one yet it is available in its entirety on the criterion channel along with uh, all of the supplements that were included in the release so it's um, definitely if you haven't had a chance to watch it and you're subscribing you should give it a shot all right let's move on now to uh, our next pick of the night trevor what is your second choice my second choice is uh, The Kid Brother, uh, starring Harold Lloyd. Uh, it, it is directed by Ted Wilde, but Criterion doesn't even put that on their cover, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know if so I needed to mention that or not. Um, but anyway, I've really enjoyed the Harold Lloyd releases, and every time they do one, and they haven't done a ton of them, but I kind of think with the next one, oh, they've already released the best ones. So this must just be a curiosity. And then I watch the film and think, man, how did I miss that? That's so much fun. That might be one of my favorites. Um, and the Kid Brothers certainly surprised me so many different times uh, throughout it. I, in, in it, Harold Lloyd, um, he, he's a member of the Hickory family. But the Hickories of Hickoryville are known for their, you know, strength and their, you know, they're the town enforcers. They they kind of run things because they're manly men. But Harold Lloyd's character is not. And he finds himself being discarded and kind of discounted a lot by his family and by others in town. But he's 
got a mind on him. He's brilliant. He's clever. He gets in and out of scrapes uh, in the funnest ways possible. And the film was just a delight because it, it it's made in the same way. There are all of these fun tricks that it's playing with us and and showing off and and you know of, of course I mean from the from its era there's a lot of uh, just really clever fun uh, ways that uh, Harold Lloyd um, plays uh, to the camera and surprises us time and time again and I was surprised at where the film goes it becomes kind of a little bit of a horror story in a way uh, toward the end um, but yeah, really love it. And and David, just to kind of mention earlier when we were talking about Diamonds of the Night, I thought, man, I really loved David's videos. Um, oh you, yeah, you don't have to start him again, but I loved him. And I and talking about the Kid Brother, I remember your your yep. uh, video on the Kid Brother too. Those those were fun. Um, and but yes, uh, on the Kid Brother, if if people haven't checked it out. Uh, it's, it's, it's so fun for everybody. My kids love it. I love it. Uh, I don't know anybody who wouldn't love this film. He kind of takes some of the Western conventions. I mean, he, he definitely, it's, it's a very clever lampoon of a lot of movie cliches that even by the late 1920s had already been sort of beaten into the ground, but he subverts them and, and very witty. And yeah, it, it, he's a very accessible, likable character, you know, uh, obviously, uh, the weakling of the bunch as far as his big brawny brothers and dad are concerned, but uh, gets by on, on his uh, on his insight and his uh, you know quick thinking and all of that. And just just really, really hilarious. Uh, some of the scenes are are really just laugh out loud funny. So uh, and I do have every intention of making those videos. I, I have a house guest. My dad is living with us right now, and that <laughs> that actually creates a little self consciousness on me to shoot a video. <laughs> so, but he's he's gonna be he's gonna be traveling out of the country for Ever a, the a few months. Dad. So. <laughs> <laughs> haven't quite outgrown that one yet but uh yeah um i appreciate the nice comments on that but i i agree this is a, a delightful film and uh yeah i think this is like what the fourth uh harold lloyd that criterion has put out and i do yeah, wonder yeah. how many more of those they have in the bag for features because uh are they going to get into the because they've already released all or? the best ones right like right I always the silence thinking. anyways yeah so are they are they going to get into this talky era or not you know and uh Keep uh, being rumors, so maybe. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it maybe, seems like well, maybe one day we might get another Eclipse box set. Well, it seems like the family, the Harold Lloyd estate, which I think is, is still very tightly managed by you know his his descendants and and very you know very business oriented as as Harold Lloyd himself really was. He was one of the richest men in in show business at the uh, during you know the 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 length of his life. Um, it seems like they have a very compatible relationship with Criterion. So. If we're going to get any more Harold Lloyd, it seems like it's going to be with the big C on it. I really love, um, just to go, uh, once again, bring up the cover art, the consistent um, design work that uh, Efron Miller brings to these releases. Um, I I think he's done all of the Harold Lloyd films now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, 
you know, I love the Chaplin covers, uh, despite the fact that they're all by from usually from separate artists. Um, but it's nice when Criterion and they do this regularly with Mizuguchi or uh, sometimes with you know, I, I guess like there there are certain occasions where they'll have one artist do you know all the covers for a film. The Ophuls films, yeah, maybe, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to have these. It it makes them feel you know like you could put them together into a box set. Um, and they would all, you know, look and feel uh, of a of a, a similarity, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's. Uh, does anyone else have any other thoughts on this Harold Lloyd film, or do you have any thoughts on which which Harold Lloyd film should they do next? Is there, is there one like obvious one that seems like they is is left that isn't one of the lesser Lloyds? um i don't know if this is considered official lloyd or lesser lloyd or what but i adore the milky way and i would love to see that i'll follow your lead on that one (laughs) yeah i I don't really have a a a lot of knowledge of his other films i i'm kind of like trevor just kind of watch them as they come out it's like oh yeah that that's really good you know they have not scraped the bottom of the barrel yet i also want to give a shout out real quick to uh david cairns who did one of the, the the video essay uh, on this and you know i've been following his blog for a long time his shadow play uh film blog and it's always fun to hear him you know uh on different releases where he's done it's you know it's it's nice to see him join the collection in various ways in the supplements um he i know he's done uh video essays i think for like bfi and arrow maybe um and maybe the master of cinema too but it's nice to see him you know join the collection in these uh, short little essays. All right, let's jump now to Jordan. Why don't you talk about your number two pick of the night? My number two pick is uh, Diamonds of the Night. And before I talk about the film a little bit, I will just correct that I did not mention the credits on the cover. I chose this as my favorite cover. And the illustrations by Sterling Hundley. And it looks like the designer for the release is Eric Skillman. Um, So this film is from 1964. It's a pretty early entry into the Czechoslovak New Wave um, by Jan Nemitz, who has pretty decent representation in the Pearls of the Czech New Wave box. And um, this is, in my opinion, probably superior um, to even the really great films in that set. Um, It's pretty short. It's just slightly over an hour. It's black and white. It's got really great experimental editing that kind of moves around in time. And it's this kind of stark, urgent tale of expulsion. It's these two very young men. Um, You can learn more about um, what has happened to them, um, but the film doesn't make it explicit. It's it's based on a short story um, by Arnos Lustig um, and uh, called Darkness Cast No Shadow. And it's um it's got this really heavy silence to it. It's it's not a soundless film, but it's got this um really minimal soundtrack. So there's these there's there's drips and there's you know the heavy breathing and coughing of these young men as they run through the forest or walk through the forest. They've got, you've got the footsteps on uneven forest floor. Um, later in the film, you get these very gross sounds of old men eating, which um, their sort of consumption works in opposite to the to the hunger of the boys. Um, the boys look very exhausted. Um, you know that they've been through something uh, very traumatic. Um, and the silence of this film, it's or the near silence of it, it, it's it it really evokes you know that 
that devastation of like when your society revokes your membership, um, you know, and tries to dehumanize you in the way that these these young men have been dehumanized. Um, there's this anxiety to the film and this emptiness to the film, even in the flashbacks. It feels like the world that has been foreclosed to them um, is empty in a different way. Like they've, they've already lost so much, even in the past that they now somewhat romanticize is the way that comes across. But even this emptiness, emptiness of the present has a kind of like dark poetry to it. You know, it's, it's a highly aesthetic film. It's, it's beautiful to look at. And there are moments of like private liberations, like there. The, so the film starts out with this very, um, much talked about long take of them running up the hill. In fact, speaking of David's videos, <laughs> I believe David once ran up a hill uh, in, <laughs> in, in honor of this film. Um, and no matter how you read the ending, uh, which is ambiguous, it has a lot to do with the way the editing style jumps back and forth. I think ultimately this film is about liberation. Um, there is a liberation that takes place at the end, again, no matter how you interpret that sequence. Um, and it's exquisitely shot with, uh, you know, a lot of handheld. Um, the editing is is very, very precise. Um, I guess it took a, a much longer to edit this film than to shoot. That's probably typical of films that have this kind of attention to detail. Um, but uh, yeah, it's... it's um, Ryan, you said, you know, sometimes the temptation is to to choose the mo most, like, in-your-face monumental releases. And so I went from seven hours to, like, almost just a little over an hour um, just because this film was, was is so powerful. And uh, it's another one that's up on the Criterion channel in full. And there's a uh, supplementary short film, um, I think, called Loaf of Bread, which is also um, based on... Arnold Lustig's work, um, and I should say those those uh, works by Lustig are also based on his own life. Um, he was a concentration camp survivor, and that becomes obviously uh, a uh, extra textual explanation for for what these young men have been through. This was your pick for the cover, and I just wanted to uh, throw a link to the the interview with the artist uh, that is linked on the page for from Criterion, where they do give you a little glimpse into like the behind the scenes process. It's not one of those full videos where they you know go into their studio and show off everything that went into it, but it does give you some nice um, behind the scenes looks at the kind of collage work illustration that the and painting that went on in that cover. It's just uh it's so incredible oh cool all right so my pick is uh Hedwig and the angry inch this one was one that we had been i think it had been rumored for a while it hit, i think the year before uh last year um uh, mitchell went on instagram and had kind of revealed uh in one of the live videos that this was going to get a criterion release and i think maybe even before that criterion had kind of uh, maybe it wasn't Criterion teasing it as much as the the uh, director hoping that it would get a Criterion release, uh, you know, publicly online. And many people were, would often uh, point it out that it, you know, deserved a Criterion release. And it was one of those films that uh, didn't have a Blu-ray. It was available on DVD. And, you know, that's where the, the commentary that comes with this release um, originates from. But this, I love how much they went in and you know, really created a number of excellent supplements uh, on, you know, interviewing on different elements of the film from like the, the look and the music, like the, the songs in this film are just so wonderful and, and like charming. And, you know, you, it's just amazing that 
like all of the art that goes on, uh, that was put together, you know, to create this film. And, um, it's one that, you know, often I try to choose the films that I kind of want to rewatch more often. You know, we talk about whether or not these movies are the best movies or our favorites. And we, you know, we go with the, really the idea that these are the ones that we want to kind of, that we've found and appreciated and want to go back and revisit. And this is one that I, you know, we'll never get tired of rewatching. Um, so happy with the, you know, the cover art that they came up with. Um, and I, I love the movie. I think it's incredible. This is a, a musical that appeals to me. Like, I, I just love, I totally agree that this is like the most rewatchable film maybe that we've talked about so far. Um, I don't really like show tunes. Um, I'm not a crazy person. I like 42nd street, but, um, I don't, I don't really find much in a lot of musicals that appeals to me. And I think it's because sometimes those songs don't feel like very cerebral in addition to not liking show tunes. But these songs are just, like, they're, they're brilliant. Like the lyrics are very amazing. And you can just listen to the sound, or I can just listen to the soundtrack uh, endlessly. And then John Cameron Mitchell is just breathtaking in his lead performance here and i yeah i'm i'm in awe of this movie i i, I totally endorse everything you said ryan i was also very impressed i mean this guy is brilliant like does he do other stuff i mean there's so much creativity and imagination and sharp observations character portrayals the music i mean it's a very impressive all-around production um but i'm not aware of anything else that john cameron mitchell has done so i mean it seems like he's got a ton of talent uh, to, to put this all together but what else does he have to his credit or did he pour everything into this one i don't know he has released other films so like there was short okay. bus and rabbit hole rabbit uh, hole is really good yeah okay uh but i think like this one definitely uh, stands above those other ones. It, you know, for me, like it's in terms of rewatchability and like, you know, all of the, the art that goes into it. Let's move on to round three in which we're going to talk about our favorite releases of the year. All right. So David, tell us about your favorite release of 2019. Yeah, this was a, this is a complete surprise to me until I watched it uh, just, I think, maybe a couple weekends ago um i i would have gone down the list and said oh this probably wouldn't even make my top 10 but when i watched it i was absolutely blown away uh, this is charlie chaplin's the circus which i've seen before and and uh for whatever reason i considered it sort of you know fine but but not amongst his his upper tier but i really really love this movie and i guess if you think uh you know if you know what is it what is a movie trying to accomplish and is it successful at what it's trying to do this movie made me laugh just made me marvel at at charlie's uh, just the, the complete package, his, his wit, his heart, his physical agility, uh, his pacing, and just the ability to to create these memorable, un- unbelievable uh, movie stunts, uh, you know, given, you know, the limitations, if you will, by today's standards, certainly, of, of the technology and, and effects at his disposal. But uh, the circus, so let me, let me just I'll try to summarize. I have a lot I could say. Day, but f- foremost uh, is is the where this kind of stands in, in, not only in his career this is his last true silent film i mean modern times could sort of fit in that as well but this really is is kind of a, a 
it's it's the end of an era you know this is the late 1920s the depression is just around the corner uh and there's just there's just something that i find really remarkable somehow it, the, the this movie spoke to me in the times we're living in right now like uh you know big changes are afoot and we're not exactly sure if those changes are going to be good or bad and he's not really maybe going out to make some kind of big social political cultural statement but there's just something about the the format of the circus and and this atmosphere of this kind of uh you know uh, sawdust and and grime uh, carny entertainment thing and just just so many different things going on there's there's a romance story going on as there always is in 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 this era of charlie chaplin but it, it doesn't seem like it's as as you know, overblown, or you might even say as maudlin in, in some respects as like City Lights or Modern Times. I mean, it's, it's a it's a more modest little love story. And again, just the the, the laughter that watching this whole thing uh, provoked within me. It's like I am absolutely loving this experience of watching watching Charlie Chaplin do his thing. Whether it's the chase scenes, it's the uh, the fun house in the, the in the room full of mirrors and and the incredible uh, stunts and slapstick and timing of all of that. The way that he, he the camera plays with the reflections of the actors going after each other, except now they're just slamming into the mirror and just just the way the whole thing just just rolls out in front of you, just nonstop. And then and then then it comes time for a break and let's let the plot develop. I, I just to me, it just felt like a, a a brilliant masterwork uh, from a guy who I've seen do this type of thing so many times, but there was just a freshness about viewing the circus um, when I was just thinking, okay, it'll be fun. It'll be a nice Charlie Chaplin movie, but uh, it, it, it captivated me. And I just had to say, you know, that was probably my single most enjoyable criterion related movie watching experience of the year. So I guess I got to give it number one. Uh, totally agree. I think like if I hadn't, I think this is probably, you know, if I, if we had had a top four or five, this easily would have been on my list. Yeah. Uh, the, the Chaplin releases are consistently, uh, among the most rewatchable and enjoyable, you know, films and, you know, totally, uh, we talk about these long epic seven, eight hour, you know, series on, you know, with like, uh, war and peace or, you know, until the end of the world. And, but this one is a brief 72 minutes. It's just right. a, a totally, uh, a perfect little film and, um, you know, packed with supplements, um, this is, I was just looking it up and it, you know, the, the Janus criterion Chaplin deal, uh, was announced back in May of 2010. And so we've had almost, yep. almost now like <laughs> decade, 10 right? years of criterion kind of like, I, I patiently drip, like releasing these. I mean, I, I think we all kind of hoped that maybe there would be a box set or maybe there would be, you know, they would be released more frequently or and it's nice now to like see the the past 10 years and look back at all these like kind of really just wonderful well done releases and i think we're down to like maybe just the king of new york is that the yeah, last uh, I, I think so i mean because all unless they want to do like a, a a package of like uh sunny side and some of the you know shorter features of the early or early 1920s late teens but i'm not even sure if they if if that's part of this package or not but yeah king of new york i think is the last uh 
or, or, or and what a woman of Paris. Uh, they could do that one, I suppose. Uh, that's not really so much a comedy, and it's, and it's not really Charlie Chaplin on screen either. He's the director there, but th- those are potential releases. But uh, you know this, the, and that's the, that's the other thing too. I just sort of realized this is this is probably the end of the line for you know this this kind of category if you will of a chaplain film and we haven't even mentioned the monkeys on the tight ropes (laughs) (laughs) or when when he wants her to eat slower like i don't know that that moment just kills me (laughs) yeah it's it's something else yeah i I definitely plan to have this one in the player for some of the family gatherings i have over the holidays because you're right this is this is one you can just pop in they don't even have to be a cinephile or or even interested in classic cinema or anything uh this this will get them laughing uh, whoever they are it's 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 a magnificent little exercise that mr chaplin put together for us we talked briefly about the like the fold-out inserts when we were talking about the posters and i have this one in front of me right now and it's like i love the 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 title treatment with the cast and credits that fold out uh you know into like the three piece uh little insert and then as well as the way that the the essay uh unfolds too i feel like it it looks it looks really nice and you know i'm obviously a fan i you know i favor the booklets over the inserts but this one is really well done and the artwork too i love the like graphic design use of the the reds and yellows uh on it. it just looks really nice and then it also, I guess, like for Criterion nerds, it has like the the little directed by Charlie Chaplin uh, above the star, right where like they put the little blue stickers often on the on on the covers. And so when you peel off the blue sticker or you unwrap the the shrink wrap, you still have that little circle directed by down in the corner. I'm glad you put this on this list because it was like it was one that I again again it's like on my short list, and I kind of I think I've often picked the Chaplin releases as my top three of the year and it didn't work out so much this year but it's still uh, so it's so much fun to watch all right Scott let's talk about your favorite release of the night yeah uh so this one that Jordan already very eloquently got into so I don't have too much to add but uh Diamonds of the Night is a film that I saw several years ago at a theater here they played it along with uh Loaf of Bread um which actually the print they had a loaf of bread didn't have subtitles. So they passed out like a sheet of paper describing what people were saying. And we like <laughs> kind of had to like try to remember it through the screening or like kind of angle the sheet of paper. So the screen light uh, illuminated it somewhat. Uh, so it was an interesting experience, but uh, Criterion's Blu-ray of this is really astounding. I mean, it's a beautiful film in every regard. And Jordan got into that very well. You know, cinema is always kind of, at odds with this negotiation between um, kind of an interior experience and an exterior ex- experience. And uh, for the most part, films understandably uh, focus on the exterior experience because it's what we can see, it's what we can hear, you know, we're trying to kind of figure these people out through what they do. Um, but Diamonds of the Night is just as much about how they think, uh, what they think might happen, what they hope might happen, um, what it feels like to be in the circumstances they're under. And the way that they draw that out in the cinematography and the sound design is just so astounding. It's only an hour long, but much more would be almost overwhelming. Um, You get so much out of that hour uh, that I would hardly need any more from it. Uh, And Criterion's transfer is really, really great. I mean, I always love a good black and white um, 
transfer on Blu-ray, and this is one of those films that accentuates why. You know, I have some friends who are like, well, what's the point of high def if it's just black and white? It's like, no, watch this and you'll really see. Um, and the supplements that Criterion put together are really thoughtful as well. It's been a while since I watched them because I saw this all back when it came out, but I remember just uh, getting a wealth of information that I feel like I don't often get in supplements. And part of it is just the age of the film and when the uh, creative team was alive and the life experiences they went through are just so unique um to the stories i think we have access to on a lot of these other releases so for these reasons and i'm sure many more that is my release of the year and yeah the cover is pretty damn good too yeah i mean i i will uh once again direct everyone to go watch david's video uh on youtube where he uh where he talks about this film and uh uh it's it's a real treat well thank you i mean yeah i trucked up on that, uh, on that hill <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right well let's uh move along here trevor why don't you tell us what your favorite release of the year was okay um so my favorite release of the year is one that we did our last uh, mainline episode on it's william wyler's the heiress starring olivia de Havilland as that titular heiress um i I don't know if I have much more to say about this because we had such a fun conversation about it. Um, but in, in general, you know, this is this was a surprise to me. I'd not seen it before, and I was just swept into this story um, where Olivia de Havilland is being courted by Montgomery Clift's character. Um, her father, played by the magnificent Ralph Richardson is, you know, skeptical that uh, Montgomery Clift's intentions are good and uh, honorable. And then you have Miriam Hopkins as an aunt. It's just a tremendous story that uh, lifted me up, put put me down. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I've shown it to several people um, this year. It's So it's become my most watched Criterion release of the year as well. Uh, just a tremendous surprise. I love Henry James, and this film certainly did him justice. And um, again, I'll refer people to our conversation that was with Scott and David uh, a few months ago, and where we get into a lot more of the detail about it. Uh, that was a fun, memorable uh, conversation of the year as well. But but yes, that's my my top release. Uh, and again, one of those where I kind of figured that's where it would end up when I first watched it back in the spring you know that it just it stayed there <laughs> yeah i think i remember saying something along it's, it's like a perfect movie and just uh the the production values the performances the scripting uh it, it's a real masterwork you know weiler was a was a incredible talented director and he brought the best out of his cast and everybody's just completely on point so yeah i I think maybe if I hadn't already done my full podcast about it, this probably would be right up there in the top ranks as well. So good choice. Um, uh, we didn't mention the cover in our favorite covers, but I have to just give a huge shout out to the amount of work that went into creating the cover for this one. They didn't, I don't think yeah, they've put, yeah. one, put one together for uh, the Criterion website, but I'll try to include a link to the artist, Danielle Klaus. Uh, website where she posts um, some pretty nice images kind of showing off the like stitch work like this is a handmade uh, cover where she actually went in and like 
sewed it. I can't, I don't know if like, I don't know the correct terminology for like how like stitching uh, work, uh, the embroidery or whatever, but it is just like, you see close-up shots of it and you're like, wow, she really went in and made this cover by hand. And like so often covered, these covers are just like drawings. And that almost feels like, oh, well, you're taking the easy way out by just doing a drawing when you can like actually put together like this entire like like stit- hand-stitched painting, uh, you know, piece of work that is then scanned in and, and printed out. And when you look at it from far away, it, you you almost think like, oh, well, it's just this like kind of stylized painting and it's not really, you know, it's like, oh, well, the, you can see the brush strokes in it, but no, like if you open it up and you look at it close up, it's like, it's a completely different, uh, you know, piece of work compared to all the other stuff that. Yeah. It's, it's actual had. needle point, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, did the embroidery and all of that. So I think Death and Venice also had sort of a sculptural process yeah, thing that totally. that they end up sort of photographing and then treating the the print there. So yeah, there's, this is not just uh, you know media on paper. They're they're getting into real tactile and three dimensional stuff to create these images. It's and pretty he, pretty impressive. They on her uh, post that she has on her website, you can see the back of it too, and the back of it almost is like a weird kind of negative image, uh, like kind of. Uh, like a, a more like abstract version of of the front but it's uh just a real neat like process post so I'll, I'll put a link in the notes for it and and what i meant about conceptually this feeling like so rich to me like like this is Catherine's version of herself which is the only version she can trust in you know as lonely as her version of herself is like she can't trust her father she can't trust this guy she can't trust anybody but her what she sees what she projects on herself and i find that so devastating and beautiful all right let's move on now and talk to jordan what was your number one pick of the year um so i i defended myself a little by saying that my second choice was only like an hour long Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but for my number one choice um, I don't even know what the running time on this entire set is, but this is um, this is the Coquer trilogy by Abbas Kiarostami, and it should really be called uh, the Coquer Foursome. And I know I'm saying Coquer funny, but that's how they say it. And everybody says Coquer, but everyone in the films say Coquer, right? Um, but there's a supplement. Jordan, you're allowed to pronounce things correctly. Okay, I appreciate <laughs> that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> So one of the supplements is another film by Kiarostami called Homework, which was made after the first film, Where's the Friend's House? And so this, it really does feel like a, a foursome. Um, that film is very important, I think, to understanding how all of them evolve. Because like, so the first film, Where's the Friend's House, uh, made in 87, um, is a pretty uh, straightforward narrative. I mean, there are surprising things about it, but doesn't ever um, unfold in a metatextual way, right? Um, It never becomes Brechtian. And then homework is kind of a straightforward documentary. Uh, And then from there, like these two halves, these two kinds of filmmaking um, merge. And then you have the subsequent films and the life goes on and through the olive trees, which comment on or recontextualize the world that exists after Where's the Friend's House is made. So Where's the Friend's House exists as a film um, in both the in, in the third and four, uh, I'm sorry, I guess I'd say second and third entries in the trilogy. And this is such a great 
like if you don't know anything about Abbas Kiarostami, uh, you haven't seen Close Up or uh, any of his films, you, I think you can, because of the way that it's structured, you start with a, a traditional narrative film. This is a really good explanation of a lot of the curiosities and concerns that he has as a filmmaker and his evolution as an artist, um, um, how he's interested in, you know, the dynamics of identity, how, how fluid identity is, you know, um, what does it mean to have a double? Um, what does an image mean versus an actual person? Um, what is being an actor actually in, involve? Who is an actor? Is everyone an actor? Um, and some of these are very postmodern questions, but one of the things that I think Kiristami does that a lot of other postmodern projects um, have no interest in is he he marries romance to postmodernism. Like there's an earnest pursuit of human love um, in in these films. So he he's avoiding the trappings of cynicism. You know, like where you're sort of winking and laughing at the process. Um, he is a bit of a trickster. Um, he's playful in in the way that. Like he he lets you behind the curtain of filmmaking only to show you that behind the curtain is another curtain, you know, and then another curtain, you know, presumably ad infinitum. Um, so there's definitely games at work here, but I, I don't think he ever releases this um, this overall interest in in humanity um, as as I think the primary impetus for these for these stories. Um, and I mean, you could talk for forever uh, about about this group of films or I could um, because they're so stimulating on a, a cerebral level as well as like this visceral experience of just like letting them unfold as both stories and as objects um, so um, I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll close the, my, my comments just by picking um, one additional element um, uh, through the olive trees. It's it's not actually the best one. Um, uh, I think it's probably in my taste the the least exciting, um, but it's still a great film. But it is maybe because I find it the least exciting. It's kind of the easiest for me to talk about. See, I I just, I, I like to learn things um, from films. You know, not just be inspired by them, but like you know the things that make me see the world differently and. Um, make me a better thinker. And um, I was really turned on by the things that Kurostami doesn't show you. Uh, the the choices that he makes to avoid close-ups when you'd think <laughs> you deserved one, you know. Um, so one of the, you know, primary, uh, actually the primary uh, storytelling um, device in through the olive trees is its relationship between this, this, uh, this boy and this girl. Um, he, he likes her. He wants to marry her. Uh, she won't speak to him. Um, so this is not a concept that's introduced immediately. We eventually find this out, um, a little bit into the story. Um, so, but they're ca cast opposite each other, um, because it's a, it's a film within a film. In fact, actually it's the second film within, uh, the, this film, the third film, um, and she won't say her lines now that she realizes who she's supposed to say them to because she's not talking to this boy in real life. Um, but we don't see her um, not talk to him. So we can't read why she won't talk to him. Um, we hear about a look she gave him in the cemetery. We don't see that in flashback. We don't know what that look appears to communicate. Um, so we don't know whether to trust his impression of it. Um, we don't see her expression um, when he is 
when we were finally upstairs and seeing him try to solicit her response, um, her, her face remains hidden. Um, and when she finally consents to stay, at least her lines, her written dialogue, she's, you know, she, she consents to speak only to him through someone else's voice. So even when she's talking, we're not really hearing from her. And then presumably near the end, when maybe she finally does speak to him as herself, we don't see that. We're, in a, we're seeing them from very, very far away. And, you know, we can assume that they actually communicated based on his reaction. But this overwhelming lack of evidence in, in that sequence of events um, kind of epitomizes one of the takeaways that I had in general watching his films and the way that he constructs stories, that that restraint of holding us at a, sometimes a field's distance from where the drama is unfolding um, was fascinating to me and 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 taught me about like the dynamics of 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 the way that that heightens both curiosity um in in the viewer and also the surprising amount of satisfaction that you can have when you're not really told very much about what's happening hmm. had you had a chance to see these films jordan before the box set was released this year no, no. These were I'd, I'd seen uh, Taste of Cherry and Close Up, uh, but these were first time watches for me. Well, I'm because you know, I'm just trying to imagine. I mean, you know, this is one of the the great luxuries of the times we live in, where you can really sit down and and study these films, watch them all in close proximity. And I'm just wondering, what would the experience have been like if you'd been watching the Coker trilogy as it sort of unfolded in real time, with maybe a couple years between each film, and and were they shown sort of in close proximity together or it was was Kiristami kind of relying on the viewer to have remembered sort of the previous film and how it sort of you know fits within the context of its subsequent film because that's you know, both of the sequels if you will sort of build on each other that way but if if you haven't watched them somewhat recently then you know you, you might miss out on some of those details but I also wonder uh you know this this feels like maybe a set i i've only gone through it once and i did watch most of the supplements but it feels like this is one that you know just sort of settle into and sort of let it permeate you a little bit to get the full benefit from it i was impressed but like you sort of said about like through the olive trees i felt a little bit of diminishing returns i mean where's my friend's house is just astonishingly yeah moving and effective and then it gets a little bit more abstract a little bit more cerebral you know with each iteration going outward but not that it's a bad thing, but um, you know that that initial sort of emotional rush of the first one, and then the second and third felt like a little bit more like work to me, but but um, not work that wouldn't pay some dividends. But I just uh, kind of wonder if I I will benefit from repeated exposure. Uh, this is clearly a very important uh, collection of films, and this is probably another one of those sort of criterion tent poles that will be remembered from this year's lineup uh, above many others. But uh, yeah, I think it's one I'm going to continue growing into. When uh, this one was announced, there was a lot of talk, I guess, ever since the announcement that Janice would be touring the various restorations um, of the Kiarostami films that, you know, would they, would they release this as a trilogy box set or would they release it as a you know, as some kind of massive Kiarostami box that would include everything that they have uh, the rights to, and they chose to do this. And um, it's really interesting to see or to think about what, you know, what they might do with the short films that they have uh, the rights to, which film might get, a, you know, a Blu-ray upgrade next, something like Taste of Cherry, um, 
or will you know will they release will they have physical releases for things like five dedicated to ozu or um uh, you know shirin or um so, or some of the other ones uh 10 um or will they or will they put together some kind of massive box set for everything i'm gonna jump ahead now to my number one of the night my favorite release of the year now this one was tough i i wanted to pick the cocaine trilogy also and i kind of i i, I ended up switching at the last minute because i felt like this one um i don't know it, again i like to pick the movies that i like to rewatch, and um despite the kind of intense nature of this movie uh, I love rewatching Do the Right Thing. Um, I think it's my favorite Spike Lee movie, and it's you know, and I love a a lot of his films. Like it's he, but I just I love the kind of like feisty raw nature of this movie and him as a director and how uh, how angry he is. Uh, just like shines through in everything um, that he does, and you know, be angry rightfully so for the like injustices of. Um, you know, of the American racial, uh, you know, problems that we've had. It's amazing to watch this movie, you know, now. And we, we covered this on the podcast like 10 years ago. It was one of the, you know, probably one of the first half dozen movies that we covered uh, on the show. And it still feels, you know, relevant in, in all the ways that uh, it felt relevant when we first talked about it 10 years ago or when it was released um, back in 1989. I, and, and, what I think made me really want to pick this movie as my favorite release of the year was just because it, when Criterion does a Blu-ray upgrade, well, it just like, it feels like this is their first, like this is the first time they've released it almost like it's, you know, a completely redesigned package with added supplements in it with a new restoration going above and beyond with the, like, you know, commissioning of the mural that they chose, that they had uh, painted on the side of that wall. I think it's at, at his, is it at his office in Brooklyn where they had the painting done? Yeah, it's it's one of, it's it's like, what, uh, 20 acres and a mule or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it, maybe one of the sound stages or something like that. But it's 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 one of the main entry doors uh, to, to the premises there. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those early Criterion releases that was... I think it had a Blu-ray release from the studio from Universal. And so it's one of those releases that Criterion um, kind of needs a reason to to redo it. And so they managed to, you know, just put together this entire package with, with added uh, features. And it just feels um, like a Criterion, like, you know you think about those criterion releases. Well, like if I had to get rid of everything and I could only keep a few things and I could only rewatch the same few movies, uh, this is one of those ones for me. I think this, you know, this with seven samurai seven seal, I think this is right up there for with all of those ones. I think the original DVD release was one of criterion's capstones in that format for that era. It was, you know, a double disc set, uh, you know, massive supplements. I think, most, if not all, of those supplements have been carried over, but there's yeah. new stuff as well. Um, so they've they've really given this film a lot of love and definitive presentations twice now, you know, and and obviously with Spike Lee's personal involvement. Uh, I, I'm not completely certain on this, but it, wasn't the studio Blu-ray kind of like they desaturated it, or it was like more the natural colors, and now it's got a little more of that heat element coming through in the in the 
in the new transfer that yeah transfer. i think that's right right so um yeah it's it's it is definitive and you're right it is like a kind of a a fresh unveiling of a, a film that I think really is a cultural milestone. And, and, and like so many other um, criterion releases of this year, I think, again, you know, sometimes very pointedly and directly, they speak to this, the political and cultural situation that we're facing, not just in the USA, but really throughout the, you know, on a global scale, but obviously with some very specific uh, glances towards the, the American political scene uh, and, and cultural scene and, and obviously do the right thing. It, it speaks a lot about uh, race relations, uh, the, the, the kind of simmering uh, undercurrent of, of violence that's ready to erupt. Uh, you just throw the right spark at it, and boom, things. That's that's where it goes. So um, I, I think it's a fantastic, you know, best of. I think really all of these make pretty rightful claims to, you know, uh, you know, peak releases of, of 2019, and for a lot of different reasons. So I think we'll wrap things up for the night. I'll go around and if you guys have any final thoughts or if you have anything that you want to plug before we close out tonight, uh, Trevor had to step away uh, a little bit a little bit early. So we just want to say thanks to Trevor and to make sure that you uh, follow him. I'll include links to his website and you know uh, social media handles as well. But David, uh, anything that you would like to promote or you know re- reflect on the year? Uh, <laughs> over- yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I'm a little bit of a hiatus from my regular podcast, Criterion Reflections, just so I could focus on 2019 stuff. I'll be coming back in January uh, with Louis Mao's uh, Murmur of the Heart. Got a couple excellent guests lined up for that and ready to kind of plunge into the second half of Criterion Films of 1971. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about maybe doing a best of the decade uh, as far as Criterion is concerned. Uh, what's been happening with Criterion since 2010, which is, you know, right around the time that we, you know, you started your, your, your the Criterion Cast website. I was a year into my blogging about Criterion Reflections. But, but really, you know, 2010, uh, through you know this this month now that's that's 10 years of of evolution of the criterion brand and i think it'd be kind of fun to look back and say what are some of the the highlights for those of us who've been you know following the collection uh purchasing the discs and watching all the different iterations that that criterion has gone through streaming media dual formats the eclipse series i mean just a lot of interesting things have happened so uh, we don't have a scheduled date or time uh for recording that not even a lineup but it's just an idea that we thought let's take a look back so that might even happen in january and i think you and i uh, and perhaps uh, hopefully some others will be able to get together to decode what we expect to be another new year's wacky drawing so we've got a few uh fun conversations uh coming up in the next few weeks absolutely uh scott any any links you want to promote or uh reviews or top 10 lists that you're working on for the year yeah, um, just right now, my best of the decade is up at battleshipretention.com. I just posted that yesterday as of this recording. Um, and I'll be on that podcast in a couple of weeks, talking about my top 10 of 2019. And I think that's it for now. <laughs> Did uh, Has Battleship Retention done an episode on the best of the decade in kind of commem- commemoration with all these other top best of the decade? Yeah, Tyler and David did their lists in a separate three-hour episode. Uh, <laughs> that is very enjoyable. And Jordan, what about you? Anything uh, that you'd like to promote or share uh, or final thoughts uh, on Criterion for the year? 
Nothing to plug, but I think I'd just like to close by saying that, you know, these films are filled with so much magic and so many secrets, and I'm grateful that, you know, we all have access to them, and I'm, I'm grateful for you guys and the conversation we had tonight and this tradition, which is quickly becoming, you know, one of my favorite things at the end of the year to do. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the friendship and the common interest. Thanks, uh, everyone, for listening and downloading uh, the show and subscribing and all of your support over the years. Um, we, uh, as David said, we'll probably be back in the coming weeks as the Wacky Drawing goes up on January 1st. We'll probably do an episode that day or close to it uh, to get the, our discussion out for it. As we've mentioned in past episodes, we do have a Patreon if anyone out there is looking to support us. And I wanted to thank everyone out there who um, has donated uh, over the year. It's been a real help with, you know, costs like server costs and everything. So always appreciated. And I, uh, one of my like uh, ongoing resolutions is to actually like give our patrons uh, something back, like, you know, to, to go on there and to post more exclusive stuff. And I'm going to try to post, you know, whenever I have episodes, I like to try to share them early for people who donate there. And um, so if anyone out there is uh, interested in supporting the show, you can go on there and every little bit helps. Um, thanks again for Trevor uh, joining us. And um, there were other people who we had hoped would be on, like Arik, and then um, I'm sure he'll be posting his favorite Criterion releases of the year somewhere. So when he does, we'll make sure to share them. Thanks, everyone, uh, once again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>